Would you pray with me? Lord of all, we pray your special healing touch upon Pastor Wes, your servant. Restore him to full health and restore him to us and his vibrant ministry here. Now, Holy Spirit, humble the heart, the prideful heart of one who would dare to speak in your name. By your Spirit, open the ears, minds, hearts of your people, that each of us might hear and be changed. Amen. In 2002, Heidi and I, my wife and I first served in the country of Cameroon, and we met Co Speaksma, who, along with her husband, became good friends of ours. Uh, one day... <coughs> Co relayed the story of a woman in her home church in Vancouver. The woman's husband had died in a farming accident, and one year later her son died in an ATV, a four-wheeler accident. And at some point after these traumas, the woman met with Co and asked her this question, Why don't more Christians pray for Christ to return? Convicting, isn't it? I'm absolutely certain that some of you here have already experienced a depth of suffering parallel to that of this woman who lost her husband and son. Others of us can simply try to invest deeply into the lives and experiences of those near and far who have suffered far more than we ourselves have. But certainly together we can long for and pray for Christ to return and make all things new. That longing is a central feature of Advent. Just like Christmas and Easter, Advent is a church-invented observance, but considering the massive re-secularization of of Christmas and Easter, only Advent remains uniquely Christian. Other than an assortment of calendars offering 25 days of tasty treats or special little Surprises. there's pretty much nothing about Advent that is attractive to the secular world. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Not exactly a merchandiser's dream. Don't expect to see blessed Advent greetings pop up on the screen tomorrow on Cyber Monday. But the purpose of this season is so vital to the Christian walk of faith. This morning, I'd like to look at how Luke 4, 1 through 13, the temptation of Christ, scripture Paul just read a moment ago, how that can aid us in our difficult task of year-round Advent living. The holiday may be, or the celebration, the observance may be only named for this month, but it certainly calls us to live in Advent way for the whole year. We'll touch on the second and third temptations, but but spend most of our time on the first. If you're honest with yourself, might one of your first thoughts when hearing the three temptations be, what's so hard about that? I mean, for most of us, and especially for Jesus, how alluring can it be to bow down to Satan, to test an angel parachute, to pull some bread out of a hat? Granted, the eating part 
might be somewhat understandable if Thanksgiving dinner were 40 days previous rather than three. But seriously, it's not like making bread, bowing down, jumping off a, a tall building. Did they really rise to the difficulty of the things we wrestle with? You know, lust, gossip, anger, materialism, addictions, and on and on. Does it? Maybe so. Consider the devil's opening salvo, verse 3 of chapter 4. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God, if you are... I won't continue. Anyway, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Not so random detour for a moment here. How do you envision little Jesus in the Christmas manger? Do you imagine him with a, a divine consciousness, slyly thinking to himself, hmm, how early can I start to talk without people thinking I'm a freak of nature? Hmm, this diaper is really uncomfortable right now. Since I'm the son of God, maybe I'll just snap my fingers, perform an instant miracle change. Hmm, can't believe it'll be almost two millennia before they finally invent the onesie. No, no. That's not what's going through the little Jesus' head. Charles Wesley was on to something when he penned And Can It Be and said of God's Son, He emptied himself of all but love. The humanity of Jesus of Nazareth is full and deep and complete. The boundaries of body and brain so uncompromised that Jesus' self-awareness of his divinity... It was no Mensa manger moment. It was definitely a long-term process. So make no mistake, the devil's words were seductive. Sowing seeds of doubt in the mind of a mere carpenter's son from Nazareth. It's a repackaged enticement from the serpent of Eden. Take and eat and be like God. Here in the wilderness, he taunts the seed of Eve. If you are the Son of God, then prove it. Let's see a little magic. After all, you are hungry, aren't you? Take and eat. Question. Do you and I require a stones-to-bread fireworks show, miracle answers to our prayers, before we actually believe in the identity and power of Jesus? Or can we truthfully confess with the hymn writer, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies, but take the dimness of my soul away. I think that stanza models magnificently the patient desperation of authentic Advent living. Advent living is rooted in the already accomplished miracles of Christmas and Easter. It's a lifestyle that doesn't seek campground highs and endless signs on demand. It's a lifestyle that revels in what Christ has done and is supremely confident of what Christ will do. And that combination of gratitude and hope is a potent combination for Advent living. Even so, 
Even so, wouldn't zapping stones to bread be a a real shot in the arm, a a pick-me-up that would make our Advent living more successful? Wouldn't it be helpful if, in our moments of trial and temptation, God would break into the deafening silence with a mighty supernatural trumpet blast? Oswald Chambers, writer of the famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, offers an encouragement that I think here turns the silence of God completely on its head. Here's what he says. When you cannot hear God, you will find that he has trusted you in the most intimate way possible, with absolute silence. Not a silence of despair, but one of pleasure. Because he saw that you could withstand an even bigger revelation. For a while you may think, I asked God to give me bread, but he gave me a stone instead. He did not give you a stone, and today you find that he gave you the bread of life. When God offers you silence or or seeming absence in times of struggle, when you are, we could say, forced to fast in the wilderness, fasting from ease and visible blessings, God may be affirming rather than abandoning you. Like his confidence in Job's loyalty, despite Satan's sneering, God may be declaring to you, the faith I have given you is sufficient Let me prove it to you. Let me show you that by grace you are strong enough to endure my silence and yet remain faithful. But there's another aspect to the experience of trials and tribulations here. While fasting may have made Christ vulnerable to the physical temptation of bread... It simultaneously strengthened him for the much greater spiritual temptation to doubt his identity as the Son of God. I mean, isn't that the purpose of fasting? To devote more time and energy to intimacy with God? To grow spiritually, to exercise one's faith muscles? To take up a mini-cross and identify with Christ? If the temptation was essentially about eating, then then Christ's foodless desert wandering was a a tribulation that made that temptation harder. And of course, he was hungry, and that's a, a real thing. But when we grasp that the deeper temptation was deeply spiritual, we recognize that the Holy Spirit led Christ into the desert with gracious purpose. Jesus was given, Jesus was given the gift of 40 days to fast in preparation for the devil's assault. The devil didn't stand a chance. So ponder the wilderness fastings we face in our Advent living. Difficulties and trials, waiting, lacking and longing, enduring the seeming silence from God at times, those things tempt us to falter. Our instinct is to avoid such unwelcome experiences at all costs. We might insist that instead we be be served delicious desserts, circumstances and outcomes that fit perfectly with our own plans and own timetables. Bring us some figgy pudding and bring it right now. But if prayerfully embraced, 
the perils of Advent living can actually be preparation for spiritual victory. When deprived of things of lesser importance, earthly things, our understanding of divine truths can grow. Our longing for Christ becomes a feast that strengthens and sustains us. Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting a trite little, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Evil is always evil. But what I am saying is this. By the grace of God, wilderness fasting can feed your faith. So fasting prepared Jesus, but in the moment of temptation itself, how did he confront it? In verse 4, in verse 8, in verse 12, we see very clearly his simple and powerful strategy. It is written. It is written. Try this for word association. Led into the wilderness for 40 such and such, nothing to eat, hungry. Did the word Israelites come to mind? It's a little easier since we just read the scripture a few moments ago. The description of their sojourn is recorded in Deuteronomy 8, the exact portion of scripture from which Jesus quotes. Folks, Jesus was a serious student of God's word. And I realize that's kind of a, you know, no duh, Heisinga moment. But, but sometimes it's just enthralling to encounter Christ's wisdom and knowledge of the word. Like the teachers at the temple when Jesus was only 12 years old. I am astounded. This is what I mean. When he was led by God into the wilderness, hungry for 40 days, longing for familiar food, he recognized precisely how the word of God intersected with his circumstance. His response to the devil, man does not live on bread alone. It's not an isolated, spiritual food is more important than physical food. As true and important and effective as that is. But Jesus is also consciously identifying with this. Remember how the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 8, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you could keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is declaring to the devil, I refuse to pine for the leeks and onions of Egypt. If need be, in this desert, in this very desert, Yahweh can feed me with manna from heaven. The precedent is enough. The precedent is enough. No presto shazam miracle needed, and certainly not at your request, Satan. My Father will provide. Jesus' example here challenges us, I think, to know the Word of God with such depth that we can apply it with wisdom and power to the specific trials of our Advent living. I suppose sometimes the Lord uses the sort of, let the Bible fall open and 
I'll point my finger, bam, randomly, drop it onto a verse here. I suppose sometimes he honors that creativity. But that almost seems to me like a turnstone to bread sort of expectation of fireworks. The hard work of immersing ourselves in Scripture, that's the wilderness survival technique we need to practice. Feeding on the Word of God prepares us to bring the Word of God to bear on our dire circumstances. Weary sisters and brothers facing trials past, present, and future, do you intentionally search and speak the Scriptures? It is written, it should be our overarching mantra for Advent waiting and Advent living. It is written. Now, I don't claim to be able to read Jesus' mind. Another one of those, duh, Heisinger moments here. But I'm rather convinced that in this moment of trial, there was another word of God, a divine proclamation that was even more powerfully sustaining him. On January 26, 2014, at Resurrection Community Church outside Philadelphia, I had the great privilege of baptizing the first of my children. In preparation for that service, I was reading a passage from Luke chapter 3, the chapter just prior to ours today. The passage moved me deeply. For one, it was written by Luke, the 2,000 years ago one, not the one who was shortly to be standing in the baptistry, son's name, Uh, but much more significantly, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized... Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If that passage was meaningful to little old me as I prepared to baptize my eldest, just imagine what those words must have been like for Jesus. Here in chapter 4, when the devil scoffed, if you are the Son of God, at that very moment, ringing in Jesus' ears, I'm pretty sure, must have been Father God's pronouncement to him just 40 days earlier. You are my Son whom I love. You are my Son. Whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If trials prepare us for Advent living, and the Word of God is our tool for Advent living, then the biblical assurance, this biblical assurance, is our truth for Advent living. You are a child of God. He loves you. With you he is well pleased. People chosen of God, baptized with his spirit, you are marked with the Lord's unshakable pronouncement. You are his child whom he loves. With you he is well pleased. That is the truth of grace, undergirding what would otherwise be an impossible task of Advent living. While we wait for our blessed hope, the return of Christ, let Abba Father's declaration of love for you demolish any of the devil's seeds of doubt. 
Let me conclude briefly with the second and third temptations. The allure of the second temptation was for Jesus to avoid the cross, to regain his throne without cost. Bow down to me, and I'll give you the world. Skip the cross. Don't take the long route. Don't wait. Grab it now. Strike a bargain. I'll give you a good deal. An irresistible Black Friday sale. Just bow down. But Jesus refuses to accept a coronation before accepting the cross. Palm Sunday alone is not sufficient. Before Easter morning must come Good Friday and Silent Saturday. Jesus is no Esau hungry enough to sell his birthright. He holds on to his inheritance by rejecting the offer of the prince of this world, the father of lies. So with scripture, again, Jesus rebukes the tempter a second time. And in the third temptation... The devil tries to fight fire with fire. Twice foiled by the word of God, this time he attempts to steal, it is written, as a weapon against the author himself. Yeah, try that on for size. (laughs) Fat chance. But he tries. He says, if you truly are the son of God, then you can't be harmed. Throw yourself down. Surely your father wouldn't allow you to die. But Jesus rejects the devil's abuse of God's word. Get thee behind me, Satan, would be the way he tells Peter when facing that same temptation later. One day his father would indeed let him die. And of course, at that time, he would again be taunted and tempted to jump down. Save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. Ten thousand angels were not called to cushion his fall. Jesus did not come down from the cross and spare himself. But he did rise, rise from the grave to spare us. Praise the Lord. Twelve years after uh, encountering the uh, word of the woman in uh, our friend's church in Vancouver. We were back in Cameroon again, this time for a longer season. And um, on December 23rd, we received word of another woman, uh, a woman from our home church where I pastored. She and her husband on December 23rd lost the child she had been carrying for nine months, stillborn. No warning. I had married them several years earlier, and They made an interesting choice for the recessional. They walked out of that church, having vowed to love one another, to blessed be the name of the Lord. Had a little group singing it as they 
as they exited. An unusual choice for a wedding, perhaps. When I'm found in the desert place, in the wilderness, they were Advent livers. And they were Advent livers on December 23rd. They named their boy Emmanuel. In the seeming absence of God, they defiantly named their son God with us. That is Advent living. People of God, before us lies a table that draws all of this together. At this table, we remember how Jesus lay down rather than bowed down. Instead of turning stones to bread, the Son of God became bread, the bread of life. Here we feed on the bread of life that turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It may be called the Last Supper, but it's also kind of a recurring breakfast You know, we eat it before noon, usually, I suppose, but not because of that. Because in communion, we break the fast of Advent living. Our hunger, our recurring hunger, is repeatedly satisfied. And we are nourished and strengthened for our task to wait with patient desperation. And one final thought. I find profoundly beautiful what happens directly following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Having just refused the stones-to-bread request from the father of lies, he leaves the desert and proceeds to accept a similar but more genuine request from his mother. And so the first miraculous sign Jesus performs was not stones-to-bread, but water to wine. And that celebration, as this meal too, foreshadows the wedding feast of the Lamb when the tempter is vanquished forever. So even during Advent, because of Advent, let us rejoice. Christ is returning. That day will come. Let us once again continue to welcome the wait. Please pray with me. Faithful Son, made like us in every way, yet without sin. Refine and prepare us through your mercies tender and severe. Immerse us in your word that we might be equipped to counter the wiles of the evil one. And assure us as we wait that we have been lovingly adopted by you. And with us, by grace, you are well pleased. Now, O Lord, bless the bread and cup before us. Mark these symbols of grace as sacred food. In some way, mysteriously and wonderfully, beyond our comprehension, be present in this Advent meal. Nourish us to love and serve and proclaim and wait for you.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.